when the end, when the end, W Hey, hey, welcome friends, fellow wisdom seekers, fellow truth seekers, anybody just checking in with that unquenchable thirst for knowledge, haters, controlled opposition, bot shills, everybody welcome to the brave new world order podcast straight out the dungeons of podcasting i am your host brandon saint one in this episode we continue our journey into the gods of eden by william bramley we're going to continue on to chapter five the brotherhood of the snake But before we do that, I just want to give a big thank you to everybody listening and everybody that supports the show. It's really awesome to see the numbers grow somewhat. And it's all thanks to you because I didn't start this podcast to go viral or try to become some kind of influencer. I just want to talk shit. And it's awesome that you all are listening and supporting the show in your way of doing that. So Yeah, just big shout out and big thank you. And thank you and welcome to anybody just joining the show for the first time that's new to the Brave New World Order podcast. And if anybody wants to reach out, you can. You can email me, the Brave New World Order podcast at gmail.com or follow me on Twitter, which is now called X, which I never post on. But if you want to say what's up, send a DM, you can. I don't care about gaining followers on there. But I like to just keep it just in case anybody wants to reach out and say what's up. All right, so that's enough of that shameless self-promotion BS. Let's get to the goods. Let's swan dive headfirst into the abyss. We left off with chapter four that was titled The Gods of Eden, just like the book. And the last thing we were talking about was the biblical snake and its symbolism. And how the biblical snake represented two different things. It represented Enki, who supposedly engineered the creation of humankind. And it also represented a very influential organization, which Enki was the creator of. The snake and its symbolism, if you look all across both hemispheres, ancient societies use snake symbolism all over the place. In fact, William Bramley, the author of this novel, says of all the animals revered in ancient human societies, none were as prominent or as important as the snake. He says the snake was the logo of a group that had become very influential in early human societies. That group was a disciplined brotherhood dedicated to the dissemination of spiritual knowledge and the attainment of spiritual freedom. This brotherhood, according to Egyptian writings, sought to liberate the human race from custodial bondage. They also imparted certain scientific knowledge and encouraged the high aesthetics that existed in many ancient societies. According to Egyptian and biblical texts, the snake was an object of custodial hatred. Who founded the Brotherhood? Mesopotamian texts point right back to Enki, 
and those texts claim that his father, Anu, had profound ethical and spiritual knowledge. And this was the same knowledge that was later symbolized as the trees in the biblical Adam and Eve story. The biblical tree symbol came from pre-biblical Mesopotamian works, such as one showing a snake wrapped around the trunk of a tree, identical to later portrayals of the snake in Eden. From the tree in the Mesopotamian depiction hang two pieces of fruit. To the right of the tree is the half-moon symbol of Enki. To the left is the planet symbol of Anu. These drawings indicate that Enki and Anu were associated with the snake and its teachings. There are Mesopotamian texts that describe Anu's palace in the heavens as being guarded by a god of the tree of truth and a god of the tree of life. The author makes a pretty bold claim and says that Enki was the culprit who tried to teach Adam the way to spiritual freedom. And this is probably when this brotherhood of the snake began. So you see what happened is Enki was some kind of like mad scientist. He had somewhat good intentions, but they wanted this labor. They didn't want to do the work themselves. So he was able to find out a way to engineer a new race and to also put spirit inside of it. But then after the way they were being treated, kind of felt bad. And he kind of liked the humans. He kind of related to them. So then he tried to give them some knowledge. And then the other custodians, like Enlil, got all pissed off. This is the story of Adam and Eve, where Enki, the serpent in the garden, tries to give Adam and Eve the knowledge. And then the other custodian, Enlil, steps in. But Enki failed his mission. He didn't get them the fruit from the second tree. And at the same time, he was banished and villainized. And instead of Prince of Earth, which what his name means, Enki or Ea, he was changed to Prince of Darkness. He was labeled other horrible things like Satan the Devil, Monarch of Hell, and just straight up villainized. And anybody who looks into teachings or follows that of Enki or his other incarnations, whatever they may be. I've talked about this in the past. Enki may have incarnated as many different beings, maybe Jesus Christ, maybe Enoch, maybe Thoth the Atlantean, maybe one of the many interesting characters that show up in the mythologies all across the world in the Hopi prophecies, the Aztec prophecies, you name it. I know it all sounds blasphemous and all that, but everything has been inverted. They invert everything and they twist everything up. And they did kill Jesus too. So William Bramley did just say they made sure that future generations villainized and destroyed future incarnations. So it's very interesting to think about. So the book goes on to talk about how the Brotherhood was hijacked. It had good intentions at first, but once Enki was defeated and failed his mission, they took control of the Brotherhood and used it, along with the powerful tool of spiritual repression that he created by engineering the work race Homo sapiens. So if you think about how 
in the past, we may have had more knowledge than we have now. We may have been on a different spiritual frequency back in ancient Egypt, even before that. And this knowledge may have been given to them by Enki and other members of this brotherhood of the snake. If you've heard the story of Prometheus that gave fire to humans, he went against the will of the other gods and they were upset with him and he got a punishment. This is the same shit that's going on here. It's all connected. So what's going on here is that the Brotherhood was created with all good intentions, but they were defeated and hijacked and have been used to control humans ever since. He says here that the Brotherhood of the Snake has been the world's most effective tool for preserving mankind's status as a spiritually ignorant creature of toil throughout all of history. And that's it for chapter 5 which is titled The Brotherhood of the Snake. And we are moving on to chapter six, which is titled The Pyramid Builders. In the beginning of this chapter, William Bramley talks about the significance of the Great Pyramid and all the dimensions and how perfect they were created and built. And he speculates about why they were built. He thinks they were built for aerial navigation from space They are easily seen, and he thinks that these custodians used these pyramids to come here from other places. And he talks about how some people reported seeing pyramids on the moon and on Mars in photographs. And he also talks about the face that's been seen on Mars, too. A lot of people know about that. Some say it's just a natural rock formation. There's a lot of anomalies on Mars and the moon. And he thinks that these are all part of the custodian's aerial navigation system. He also states in this chapter that these custodial gods tricked the ancient pharaohs of Egypt into believing that they were god kings. And with this status, they made the Egyptian society more repressive in order to get the labor to operate with more machine-like efficiency. Pharaoh Imhotep who was the son of the custodial god named Ta, was the one that instituted the title of God King. And they did this so when they passed it down to the future pharaohs, pharaoh after pharaoh would use the God King status and carry out the bidding of the custodial gods. The custodians tricked the pharaohs by making them believe that they would be able to join the gods in the heavens eventually. But there was one catch. The pharaohs would only be allowed to escape earth after they died. They were taught about mummification. They said if their bodies were preserved, they would be allowed to be brought back to life and they could join these gods in the heavens. Some pharaohs like Cheops buried these large wooden boats near their tombs. They believed that their entombed boats called solar barks would be magically exhumed and they would be able to fly up to the heavens with the gods. It was a cruel joke that these custodians played on the pharaohs because these solar barks never flew. These mummified bodies of the great god kings lay in museums for us to look at when we're bored while these custodians continue to twist us up and invert spiritual knowledge the same way they did to these pharaohs. I'm sure it's the same method that's in place now. The people running this joint 
believe they are going to get something in return in the future. But it's all just one big fucking joke. And as far as the Egyptians go, they believe that the soul, or what they called the serf, was an entity completely separate from the person, their body. Egyptians labeled one such spiritual entity the ka. The Egyptians believed that the ka, not the body, was one of the spiritual entities that constituted the true person and that the body itself had no personality or intelligence without a spiritual entity. And this sounds like a pretty good idea, but it was given a false twist by the custodians. They led the Egyptians to believe that the spiritual well of the ka after death depended upon the ka maintaining contact with a physical body. According to historian Fakhri, the Egyptian wanted his ka to be able to recognize its body after death and to be united with it. For this reason, he felt that it was very important to have his body preserved. This is why the Egyptians mummified their bodies and excelled in embalming them. The pharaohs went even a step further, Mr. Fakhri explains. The Egyptians also made statues and placed them in tombs and temples to act as substitutes for the body if it should perish. So these practices had devastating impact on what these Egyptians believed at the time. It caused the people to wrongly equate spiritual wholeness with the spiritual attachment to human bodies. And instead of being spiritual, they were materialistic people, by one of its definitions anyway. Not like we are today with buying things and stuff, but more like the belief that everything including thought and emotion can be explained entirely by movements and changes in physical matter. So that type of thinking back then eventually led to the second type of materialism like where we are now like almost completely forgotten who we are. So these custodians completely mind-fucked the ancient society of Egypt along with the pharaohs, and they did it with the Brotherhood of the Snake. After they hijacked it, they used it in the mystery schools to completely twist up everything. The original uncorrupted Brotherhood had a pragmatic program of spiritual education. It was scientifical, not mystical or ceremonial. The subject of the spirit was considered to be as knowable as any other science. Before it was infiltrated and corrupted, this original brotherhood had in its possession an immense wealth of knowledge and accurate spiritual data but it did not succeed in developing a complete route to spiritual freedom. This is all before the creation of the mystery schools. Once the mystery schools were made, this is where all the corruption and deterioration of this knowledge began. The original path to obtain this knowledge was arranged as a step-by-step -step process by the Brotherhood. A student was required to satisfactorily complete one level of instruction before proceeding to the next one. All the pupils took oaths of secrecy in which they swore to never reveal the teachings of the next level to any person who had not yet graduated to that level. And this is an effective way of teaching spiritual knowledge, but just as long as the levels are open to everyone, 
But when they start putting arbitrary or blanket restrictions on who may have access to the teachings, either through overregulation, elitism, or by setting near impossible conditions for admittance, the system of confidential step-by-step level changes from an educational tool into an instrument of spiritual repression. And this is what happened when the mystery schools were created. The first temple built for use by the mystery schools was erected by Pharaoh Cheops. And this is where they started mummifying their bodies and burying those wooden boats that we talked about earlier. And according to Egyptian lore, these distorted teachings of these mystery schools were created by the great teacher, Ra, who was one of the custodial gods. Only the pharaohs, the priests, and a few others deemed worthy were accepted into these schools. Initiates were required to take solemn vows never to reveal any outsiders the secret wisdom they were taught. The students were also threatened with dire consequences if they broke this vow. The vast majority of the population had no hope of entering the schools. Their access to any surviving spiritual knowledge was therefore limited by the biblical flaming sword that we mentioned earlier, preventing access to the tree of knowledge. Another flaming sword put in place to prevent access was the Brotherhood's definition of a supreme being. William Bramley claims that the Brotherhood created certain monotheisms, like Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, that teach a supreme being was the creator of the physical universe and of the physical life forms within the universe. They believed that this one God that was usually portrayed as a spiritual being capable of possibly unlimited thought, creativity, and ability. They believed that this one God was the only being that was able to have such abilities. William Bramley thinks that that ability is in all of us, in everyone that contains a spirit. And he believes that brotherhood monotheism would actually hinder human spiritual recovery and prevent people from grasping the true and probably much broader scope of a supreme being. And as part of its new monotheism, the brotherhood began to teach the fiction that members of the custodial race were the physical manifestations of a supreme being. They started pretending that they and the aircraft were the one and only God. And this leads us to the next chapter, which is titled Jehovah. In this chapter, William Bramley claims that Jehovah or Yahweh in the Bible is actually one of these custodial gods. He claims that while Moses was raised in Egypt, he learned all the knowledge of the mystery schools and he, Moses, was actually part of the plan by the custodians to use their version of monotheism as a mechanism of control. You see, Moses here wasn't just learning the knowledge. He was actually a member of the Brotherhood of the Snake, the new corrupted version. We are going to get into all the details of that, but first let's get into Jehovah and what William Bramley claims is the proof that Jehovah was one of these custodial gods. He uses a passage here from Genesis chapter 19, verses 16 through 19. 
he thinks this sounds like a description of some advanced technology or some kind of aircraft because this thing was described as landing on a mountaintop. So here we go. There were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud upon the mount and the sound of the trumpet was exceedingly loud and all of the people that were in the camp trembled and Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God and they stood at the lower part of the mountain and Mount Sinai was altogether covered with smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire and the smoke from the fire billowed upwards like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. Another visit from Jehovah from Genesis chapter 20 verse 18, And all the people saw the thunderings, and the lightnings, and the noise of the trumpet, and the mountain smoke. And when the people saw it, they moved away, and stood far off. Another one from Exodus chapter 13, verses 21 through 22. And the Lord traveled before them by day in a pillar of a cloud to lead them the way by night in a pillar of fire to give them light to go by day and night. He took not away the pillar of the cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night from in front of the people. An interesting thing about those passages is that the ancient Hebrew eyewitnesses responsible for them were not able to get a closer look. Only Moses and a few select leaders were able to go up the mountain and see this God. And this God actually threatened death to anyone who tried. Maybe that was because if anybody actually got to the mountaintop that wasn't in on the trick, Maybe they would know what was going on. They would see the spaceship or whatever, this advanced technology, and know that this Yahweh Jehovah figure was just maybe more human-like than they thought. One of the Bible's most famous prophets, Ezekiel, was able to get a closer look and describe Jehovah in greater detail much later. And this is from the book of Ezekiel. This is a very famous passage that a lot of people in the ancient astronaut UFO community use as proof that something else was going on. So let's read it. Now it occurred in my 30th year in the fourth month as I was among the captives by the river of Chebar that the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God and I looked and behold a whirlwind came out of the north a great cloud and a fire flashed, causing a brightness about it, and out of the mist of it gleamed something like a pale yellow metal. Of it appeared four living creatures, and this was their appearance. They had the likeness of men, and their feet were straight feet, and the sole of their feet was shaped like the sole of a calf's foot, and they sparkled like burnished brass, and they had human hands under their four-sided wings. Their wings were joined together, and they did not turn when they went. They all went straight forward. As for the appearance of their faces, they had the face of a man, and the face of a lion on the right side, and they had the face of an ox on the left side. They also had the face of an eagle. 
in amongst the living creatures glowed something like coals of fire or lamps, which moved up and down between the creatures, and the fire was bright, and from out of the fire flashed lightning, and the living creatures ran and returned by flashes of lightning. Now, as I looked upon the living creatures, I saw four wheels upon the ground, one by each of the living creatures, with their four faces. The appearance of the wheels and their composition was like the color of shiny amber, and all four wheels had one likeness, and their appearance and their composition was like a wheel in the middle of a wheel. And when the living creatures went, the wheels went with them. And when the living creatures were lifted up from the earth, the wheels were lifted up. And the appearance of the sky upon the heads of the living creature was reflected as the color of a terrible crystal stretched over their heads above. And when they went, I heard the noise of their wings, like the noise of great waters, as the voice of the Almighty, like the din of an army. When they stood still, they lowered their wings, and there was a voice from the crystal covering that was over their heads, when they stood and had let down their wings. Ezekiel chapter 1 verses 1 through 25 And in Ezekiel chapter 2 verse 4, the voice told Ezekiel that it was the Lord God. So Ezekiel's vision resembles a moving fiery object in the sky emitting smoke. As this object moved closer, Ezekiel observed that it was made of metal, and out of the metal object emerged several human-like creatures, apparently wearing metal boots and ornamented helmets. So if you look at it that way, it definitely sounds like some kind of aircraft. Their wings appeared to be retractable engines, which emitted a rumbling sound. Their heads were covered by glass or something transparent that reflected the sky above. So if you look at it that way, it definitely sounds like something else was going on. Sounds like some kind of spacecraft, for sure. And William Bramley thinks that this spacecraft known as Jehovah was a custodial team, and it helped the Brotherhood of the Snake embark on a program of conquest to spread this new one God religion. And Moses... Not only was he part of the Brotherhood of the Snake, he was also a high-ranking member. Indication of this is from the Bible itself in Acts chapter 7 verses 20 through 22, in which time Moses was born and was exceedingly fair and was raised in his father's house for three months. And when he was cast out, Pharaoh's daughter took him up and raised him as her own son. And Moses became learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and was mighty in words and in deeds. More proof of this comes from Egyptian historian and high priest Manetho from 300 BC. He states that Moses received much of his education in the Brotherhood under Akhenaton, the very pharaoh who pioneered monotheism. Quote, Moses, a son of the tribe of Levi, educated in Egypt and initiated at Heliopolis, 
became a high priest of the Brotherhood under the reign of Pharaoh Amenhotep, who was Akhenaten. He was elected by the Hebrews as their chief, and he adapted to the ideas of his people the science and philosophy which he had obtained in the Egyptian mysteries. Proofs of this are to be found in the symbols, in the initiations, and in his precepts and commandments. The dogma of an only God, which he taught, was the Egyptian brotherhood, interpretation, and teachings of the Pharaoh who established the first monotheistic religion known to man. Unquote. William Bramley says that strong evidence in support of Manetho's statements is found in the early teachings of Judaism, which were deeply mystical and utilized many brotherhood symbols. These mystical teachings are still taught today in the Jewish Kabbalah, secret religious philosophy of Jewish rabbis. This Kabbalah continues to utilize a complex array of mystical symbols. Modern Israel's national logo, the six-pointed Star of David, has been a brotherhood symbol for thousands of years. According to William Bramley, Moses was part of this brotherhood, a high-ranking member, and they created this whole plot of Jehovah and monotheism, their version of monotheism. And once they got people along with it, they used this Jehovah, this one God, to demand unflagging obedience from the Hebrews. Many of the humans, when they rebelled, Jehovah would go absolutely insane and react with extreme cruelty. He reportedly killed up to 14,000 Hebrews at a time. He used a variety of killing methods such as spreading diseases. Take a look here. When the Hebrew armies reached Canaan, Jehovah went absolutely nuts and ordered them, the Hebrew armies, to embark on a campaign of genocide to depopulate all of the region's existing cities. First of these was the famous Jericho, the walls of Jericho. Under the leadership of Joshua, this is when they began their seven-year holocaust on behalf of what they believed to be their only God. When the walls of Jericho came tumbling down, the Hebrew army, numbering in tens of thousands, slaughtered everyone in the city of Jericho, except a prostitute because she earlier helped the Hebrews. But everyone, man, woman, child, animal, everything in the city was utterly destroyed. Right here from Joshua chapter 6, verse 21, and they utterly destroyed all that was in the city, both man and woman young and old, and ox, and sheep, and ass, with the edge of the sword. From Joshua chapter 6 verse 24, they burnt the city with fire, and all that was therein, only the silver, and the gold, and the vessels of brass, and of iron, they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. Then from Joshua chapter 10 verse 40, from the city of Ai, or I, interesting, I didn't know there was an Ai in the Bible, but anyway, so Joshua killed all in the country of the hills, and of the south, and of the valleys, and of the springs, and all their kings. He left none remaining, but utterly destroyed all that breathed, 
as the Lord God of Israel commanded. Straight up genocide by the Hebrew army, justified just by saying that the victims were all wicked. Sure, if a lot of the people were doing very, very bad things, completely corrupted society at its core. Does it still justify murdering all the children and the animals? And the reason this Jehovah character gives is because they were disobedient. And anytime humans were disobedient, look at the Tower of Babel, Adam and Eve story that we went over earlier. When they tried, humans tried to gain more knowledge and just try not to go along with every single thing they are told to do. These custodians get upset and they try to rein everything in and they use disasters and all types of crazy shit like genocide, wars, disease, and genocide, a tool they use a lot for promoting rapid political or social change by quickly replacing one group of people with another. And this is why the Brotherhood uses genocide quite often. And it is pretty interesting that after receiving the commandments by Jehovah, the Ten Commandments, that these people go on to violate many of them right off the bat. They go kill indiscriminately. They steal everything that's left behind. So why all of this confusion and contradictions? William Bramley thinks the answer may lie in the words of Manetho again. Quote, the wonders which Moses narrates as having taken place upon the mountain of Sinai are in part a veiled account of the Egyptian initiation, which Moses transmitted to his people when he established a branch of the Egyptian brotherhood of this country. So William Bramley thinks that the commandments came from human sources within the brotherhood rather than from custodial sources. He thinks that there is a continued presence of genuine humanitarians within the brotherhood, despite the fact that the custodians have dominated most of it. So he thinks Moses himself appeared to have been at least to some degree a humanitarian. And maybe he thought he was doing a good thing and he just got all twisted up by these custodians. They seem to be master manipulators. And they play both sides. And there is evidence of that in the Bible. When you look at the Hebrew army showing up at these cities, huge amounts of soldiers ready to destroy everything. Yet there was only one city that decided to surrender. Every other city decided to fight until everybody was dead. And why was that? Well, Joshua chapter 11 verses 19 through 20 there was not a city that made peace with the children of Israel save the Hivites the inhabitants of Gibeon all others they took in battle for it was the Lord who hardened their hearts that they would go against Israel in battle that he might destroy them utterly and that they might find no favor but that he might destroy them. This hardening of the hearts that's mentioned in this passage seems to be a manipulation of Jehovah and the custodians and that they had dominance over other cities in the region and they pitted everybody against one another. Maybe they believed they were the chosen people as well. Who knows what they really believed? 
They were all murdered, and their story was told by the people who murdered them. So this is where we circle back to the beginning of the book where he talks about an outside third party influencing two other parties into a conflict. And this is where the author gets into Machiavelli and how the main principles that he discussed are to breed conflict between people, to control them, to maintain social and political control over a populace. For the technique to be effective, the instigator must do the following. And there are four different points here. Number one, erect conflicts and issues, which will cause people to fight amongst themselves rather than against the perpetrator. Two, remain hidden from view as the true instigator of the conflicts. Three, lend support to all warring parties. Four, be viewed as the benevolent source which can solve the conflicts. For these efforts to remain successful over a long period of time, factionalism is necessary, and it needs to be bred constantly, and the custodians would need to remain permanently hidden from view as the perpetrators. This is when the Brotherhood was being forged into a far-flung network of politically powerful secret societies and religions which could successfully organize people into competing factions. At the same time, Brotherhood traditions of secrecy effectively disguised its organizational hierarchy. This is how the Brotherhood could hide at the top of the hierarchy behind veils of myth and thereby obscure their role as instigators of violent conflict between human beings. The network of the Brotherhood organizations became the primary channel through which wars between human beings could be secretly and continuously generated by the custodial society. Carrying out the custodial intentions announced way back in the Tower of Babel story. So you can see the pattern here. Conflict after conflict. Manipulation after manipulation. Everybody's all twisted up. Everybody hates each other. And it's all artificial. It's all a mechanism of control. And these events have been happening over and over again. As long as humans have been around. And it seems like these custodians also have been fucking with each other too. Supposedly before humans were even around. Enki and Enlil battling for dominion of Earth. It ain't nothing new. But how do we detect the Brotherhood involvement in these events? That's what Chapter 8 is all about. Melchizedek's apron. And it's all about symbolism. If you know the symbols and you know the signs then you can see the hidden hand. And that's what we'll get into in the next chapter. The next time we dive into The Gods of Eden by William Bramley, that will be part three of our deep, deep dive into this amazing book. It's very big, has lots of information, and we're going to go through, pick out all the amazing stuff so far. Pretty mind-blowing stuff. Let me know what you all think. Reach out, email me. The Brave New World Order Podcast at gmail.com. Follow me on Twitter at Brave NWO Podcast. Share, like, subscribe, follow, leave a review wherever you listen to this podcast. If you're on Spotify, answer the QA. Let's engage. 
Once again, thanks everybody so much for joining me on this journey. Thanks so much and shout out to everybody that supports the show. If you want to help out, there are a couple links in the show notes. Much love, everybody. You will be hearing from me soon. But in the meantime, stay positive. Question everything. Think for yourselves. Peace.